Hi, I'm Tommy Aldridge. Um, I'm a drummer. I play the drums and you're listening to Talking Blues. So I know that you dabbled a little bit with the saxophone and with the guitar, but I think you you basically got into the drums very early in your life. Tell me what that attraction to the drums, how did that happen? Yeah, my my initial attraction or interest to, to become, uh, to involve myself in music, well, I was quite young, I didn't, you know, I didn't make a distinction, but from one instrument to the next, any, any musical instrument was an interest in music. And my initial uh, interest was in drums, and it came from, my mom was the musical person, and not a musician. I'm the only uh, musician that I can find going as far back in my family tree as I can go. So, uh, but uh, for the lack of anyone else, I, I like to blame it on my mom. She played, she played, she was a big Elvis fan, and she was a big Temptations fan, and she played that stuff, and she was... Not so much a jazz fan, but she did like uh, the Brubeck Quartet, who at the time I didn't know who they were. And again, I didn't make any distinction between um, soul music or rhythm and blues or jazz or anything, music or country. My dad liked country music. Uh, but she was the one that was playing the music in the house. She had a little, a little uh, turntable with four, and she plays mostly 45s, which are the small one with the big hole in the middle, you know. It's funny, I was at a store a couple of days ago and a friend came up to me and said, I used to buy, this used to be a record store and I bought all my 45s here. And the lady behind the counter was in her, I don't know, maybe mid-20s. She had no idea what a 45 was, so I thought maybe I'd qualify the statement. But she was the one that that that, that kind of piqued my interest. And initially, it was just a little play, toy drum kit with a little palm tree uh, painted on the front of the bass drum. It was just toys. They didn't last long. My mom got them for me to save me from beating on her pots and pans and stuff, but they were so fragile that by the time I had them for a very short amount of time, they were just kind of rubble in the, in the corner of my bedroom, you know. But you started taking the drums more seriously, um, one piece at a time, if I'm not mistaken. I did, yeah. Uh, I didn't have any formal teaching when I was coming up, uh, not for uh, the only actual opportunity that, that, that was available to me was the marching band or the school band and that to me didn't wasn't the music that I was that attracted me to it and so I thought well this isn't going to, there's nothing for me here you know in hindsight uh, if, or, or if I have any regrets is that I didn't do that it would have given me some fundamental it would have laid down some drum core fundamentals and things like that and but out of frustration uh and uh to go back a little bit out of frustration, I found the drums. Uh, I had I got a snare drum and the book of rudiments, and I found it incredibly tedious trying to learn to teach my left hand to do the thing, the same thing that my right hand could do, and so forth and so on. And my mom suggested that if you will get lessons, then I will help you, you know, with getting whatever musical or to help you, you know, buy something else, a, a, another part or in other words, kind of um, fund my my endeavor. And so I went to she took me to the local music store. It was called World Lines for Music. And it was it was they had 
horns and violins and they had very little drums. There were no drums. And, and so there wasn't really a drummer there, but the person that owned the store, he was kind enough to take me in his office and he said, so you, you want to play drums or you, and I said, well, yeah, I'd like to. And he said, well, and he had a practice pad there and, and I had my sticks with me. He asked me, well, play, play, can you play a single stroke roll? You know, just very fundamental question. And I said, sure. And he pulled out this little contraption out of his drawer and put it on his desk and gave it a push. And it was a metronome. It starts going click, click. And he said, can you do the single stroke and play it with that? Well, I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't know, have the concept that drums and drumming or, or even music had a time element in it. The Brubeck Quartet, when I was listening to my mom's stuff coming up, it was a 5-4, and it, it didn't, to me, it seemed not to make any sense whatsoever, you know? And right. in reality, it didn't, because it was an odd time, you know? Five in a bar of a four, as opposed to four in a bar of four, you know? So, uh then he then it but that's when the tedium came in and trying to do this. I thought I'd already worked my way up through several rudiments and became kind because of, he asked me to play a double stroke roll, a paradiddle, a, a paradiddle diddle and stuff. And I could play them, but I had could not play them along with the metronome. And so he let me borrow that metronome and I went home and it became so tedious. And that's when I thought, well, maybe I'll try something else. And I started alto sax you know a little guitar and stuff and and that was how i that's where the guitar and the, the sax came in you know and i didn't play the sax for very long i didn't find it fulfilling and the guitar it was really cool but it didn't uh, it i went back to drums and i still fumble around on guitar and i have a, i'm not really proficient at it i'm just proficient at enough to know not to come outside of my drum room and play it anywhere, but in the, you know, in the seclusion of my drum room, you know, not for public consumption. So what do you think it is about the drums that, that attracted you to it? Well, they say, you know, sometimes uh, you, you make your plans in life and sometimes life makes your plans. I never had an aspiration to make money or, and to keep in mind, due to my generation, I was very early at the front of the whole rock phenomenon, you know. So Elvis Presley, to me, was my mom's kind of rock star. And so automatically you're not attracted to the people that your parents are fans of, you know. If your mom likes something or your dad likes something, you're automatically supposed to hate it. So I wasn't particularly drawn to that. But when the Beatles and stuff like that, Brubeck, that was one of the first songs that I actually learned to play. Uh, and it was incredible difficult because, but I didn't realize that at the time because, again, I didn't know that five four was any different than four four or or, or or six eight or whatever, you know. And so I hadn't formed any boxes around my perception, so to speak, or life hadn't formed any. Anyway, it wasn't something that I really chose to. I was just attracted to it. I had this insatiable hunger for or, or or interest in anything having to do just with the instrument itself the way they looked i had drum catalogs and i've said this before that my, uh, sometimes my mom would come in my bedroom and i would be in there under the blankets with my flashlight and she'd come in and scold me not because i was reading playboy or anything but because i was reading drum catalogs you know or not because i was reading anything but because i was uh, you know up instead of sleeping and so um you know Maybe that would that would explain a lot. You know, I was reading Drunk Out. I should have been reading Playboy, maybe. But uh, I just had a real fascination for him. And even when I was coming up and uh, I was planning bars and stuff, when I was a kid still in junior high and stuff, and I was playing in places with people that were older than I was. But uh, And I would end up 
even after I left home and was kind of supporting myself, I would sometimes go hungry. I would spend money on drumsticks or cymbals or drum heads rather than food because that was more important to me that my kit, that my desk, so to speak, my workspace was always immaculate and always as good as it could be because it was my tool, you know. And so sometimes I would literally go hungry. That's not a, you know, a, a pity story or anything, but that was just what, what my priorities were and how, and they just slowly grew and grew and the passion just became more and more, uh, refined and deep and my interest and my time by the time I was in uh, late you know sixth seventh grade I was being scolded by my classmates because I wouldn't come in out and playing baseball and playing football or, or going cycling or playing tennis I was spending more and more and more time uh, pursuing my interest in the, in the drums. Would it be correct to say somebody like Joe Morello would have been somebody you looked up to and wanted to be or did it work that way? No, Joe Morello, because I Joe, I observe, I, I perceive Joe Morello as to be someone like an adult, like my my, and he was, you know, obviously he was another another generation, but I was inspired by what he did. I didn't know when I listened to Take Five, I knew that there was a drum solo in it, but it wasn't until well, well after that probably 10 years, 20, 15 years after that, did I realize that the drum solo was in 5-4, as well as as well as the riff. And I didn't realize the genius at the time. I was just inspired by a drum solo. The drums were playing all by themselves, you know? And the, the real genius in that was the fact that he, he plays in 5-4 throughout the solo. And it's a very expressive and uh, emotional you know, so even then, even though I didn't understand it and just became more and more so, the greater my uh, knowledge of what was transpiring or my appreciation for what was transpiring, uh, the more respectful I became of him and what he was doing. But it was never something that I emulated. It was something that, that but it inspired me to no end. He inspired me to become a drummer. And I had the great privilege of of, of, of telling him that I was doing a, uh, a modern drummer festival, I think, on the West Coast, East Coast, and he was there, and I got to meet him, and I, I told him that he was so kind, and he posed with a photo, and I have a really huge, you know, in my drum room of 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 standing next to Joe Morello with his arm around me. It was very emotional for me, you know. I can imagine. He thought, oh, it's just another rock pig on pizza, you know, that's uh, <laughs> playing drums and doesn't know what he's doing, you know, but he was very respectful and very, very kind. I wonder, the fact that you started off with a snare, and then it built up the drum kit over the, I presume, a long period of time. You didn't start with the drum kit. You started with the snare and then to the hi-hat and whatever. How long did it take for you to actually get a full kit? It seemed like an eternity because when you're young, you know, a year is a, yeah. is a lifetime, you know. Now uh, a year is a blink of an eye, you know you start appreciating some of the biblical principles, you know, uh, you know, the blink of an eye or whatever. But um, I, I, I played on the snare drum uh, and I had a practice pad before that. Uh, and I played on the snare drum for, I don't know, I worked my way through a, quite a few of the rudiments. At that time, I was looking at uh, that 24 rudiments or something, you know, and, and um um, I was derailed a few times, you know, just by out of frustration and trying to learn the independence left, right, and you know that the, the rudiments teach you probably a year or so, at least a year, a year and a half with just a snare drum. And then I got a hi hat, 
And then my mom, my father's good friend, son had was a drummer, but my dad didn't know anything about any of this. It was my mom. And he decided to sell his drums. And it was a bass drum, a cymbal, and uh, a hi-hat. And so I bought that. My mom helped me bet. It was a Ludwig hobby outfit. And it was not the complete thing. And it was they were navy blue with a silver stripe painted around it. It was just a kick drum. Uh, and I already had the snare drum. A, a ride cymbal came with it and a hi-hat. So my mom helped me contributed to... She bankrolled me or partially. She would match whatever money I would raise. I had no idea what to do with it. You know, I had no idea. What, and, and, and I thought, well, I, I, would, I would read and say the rudiments or you apply the rudiments to the drum kit. Before, I only had one drum. And so I was trying to, try to figure out in my little brain how I would subdivide or orchestrate the these rudiments are around you know off someplace else and so that's what i just started doing i started taking the paradiddle instead of playing it just my left hand right hand i split my left hand in and i would integrate the hi-hat with the left hand and i would switch it and it was just messing around and, and having fun you know there was no uh goal or anything in my mind and when i got the bass drum by that time um the Beatles had come out and that music, when I listened to what Ringo was playing, as opposed to the stuff that blew Rondo a la Turk and 13 and take five and five, four, it sounded like child's play to me. It, it sounded very unchallenging, but what it did, it allowed me to find a way to orchestrate these rudiments in a way. I said, oh, I can play eight notes over here on the hi-hat. I can play one over here on the kick drum, play two on the bass drum, on the snare drum, play the next three on the kick drum and, and the four. So the backbeat and the bass drum, I started getting a, a, a vision of the percussion theory, you know, one, two, three, four, and how you started and taught me through Ringo Starr, I learned how to orchestrate across, around the drum kit. Very feebly, you know, because I was still quite young. And as time went by, I got a tom-tom, and then I got a crash cymbal, and then I got a floor tom, and I remember before I got the floor tom, I, I learned to go, da, da, ba, da, 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 you know, on the rack tom. And then when I got the floor tom, I tried to go, and it would take me weeks to get to where I would have the proficiency to integrate that other drum. And so these are all kind of, it's a, a metamorphic kind of process that for me, you know, and just, again, it, it was about orchestrating that I heard people on record do Charlie Watts at the time too, or Ringo and those guys, you know, early, early rock stuff, the early guys, you know, and they were the ones that really helped me take that next step because I didn't have a teacher saying, oh, you should take these rudiments and spread them around on the drum set and show me how to do that. And it was just through experimentation and hearing things on record and say, because if you can pick out a 5-4 at a young age, and I figured with Joe Moreau was playing da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da on the right hand. So I would just listen to that and I would learn how to practice I'd practice that. And I found out what he was doing on the snare hit. did a bat and just a little there were just accents and where the bass drum was and then when I started listening to Ringo and these guys it was eager to, easy to find out where all those points were all those they, they they were like signposts to me you know within the bar you know did you have much access to live music so that you would actually see the drummer perform 
not until later on, not until I was more advanced in my playing, because I was still, there wasn't that many places where I lived. I grew up in the South at that time. I was living in Florida and Tennessee and stuff. And I was born in Nashville, Tennessee and uh, around Mississippi and Louisiana and stuff. That's where I grew up playing, uh, Georgia. And and there wasn't, there was Memphis and there was New Orleans. And apart from that, it was, it was you know, it was pretty bleak areas, you know, to 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 really be trying to find some place to go and hear something, but later on, um, so there was a there was a New Orleans rock festival, pop festival it was called. I'll tell you how long ago it was, and I heard some really cool bands there. I heard Canned Heat there. I heard uh, Chuck Berry played at that. It was a really strange mix. I didn't know it at the time. The Young Bloods. I mean, a strange mixture of 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 early rock bands and different different genres of rock music or different styles of rock music that would be in represent. Chuck Berry was on the bill, and I was playing with a little kind of three piece band. And the person that was promoting the festival, they hired us to play as kind of like the opening band every day before, when people were coming in. And through that, we ended up being Chuck Berry's backup band. So we got to I actually got to play with Chuck Berry. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize how cool that was at the time. Again, this wasn't until retrospect, until I got older, that I start really begin to appreciate who these people were and what they brought. Because not having any other musicians in my family, there wasn't any music history, so to speak. And my my mom's knowledge of music wasn't wasn't a musical one. It was she was a, a, a an audience member. You know, she was a fan of music, and so. It was kind of almost like backwards engineering, so to speak, when I look back on it, you know. I wonder, with with your obsession with the drum kit, um, at what point did you think, this is what I'm going to do? Again, it was something that I didn't make a conscious decision. It just slowly evolved and it just kind of happened. Um, I started going out on weekends and I would come home with money and my mom said, wow, you're doing long pretty good because the money that I made before that was mowing lawns and delivering papers and stuff. And, and, and she was surprised by it. And I have to add that all through this, I began hiding myself, my, the fact that I was a drummer from my father because originally my mom said, don't tell your dad when she would give me money and, and she would she would uh, underwrite sort of my my bankrolling me trying to hold it. Don't tell dad. Don't tell dad. My dad was into country music. My dad was a very sweet man, but he was an alcoholic. He never he was one of those kind of alcoholics. It was functional. I learned this later on. And I just thought it was normal that some mornings I'd get out of go to get up to go to school and I'd have to step over my dad. You know, my dad wasn't a, a, a drunk that just slept on street corners. He he was a very functioning alcoholic. But my mom was the one that took all the brunt over. My father never, my mom did all the discipline in our family. My father got up and went to work, did all, provided for us. Uh, he wasn't a, I love you, son. How are you today? Can I, can I buy you some drumsticks today? It wasn't any of that. Whereas with my mom, she was very nurturing in that regard. But it started early on and what my mom was doing it's not good that one parent tells you to uh, hide this from the other parent. My mom didn't know that she was doing anything wrong. All she was trying to do was was out of her love and as her, out of her giving spirit, give me something that she hadn't seen in her other children. I have two brothers and a sister or anyone else in the family. And because of her musical interest and the fact that she liked music, I think that that was the reason she was kind of watering the plant. And she said, but don't tell dad. And originally it was innocent, you know, 
But what happened later on is it became something in my little boy's mind that I needed to hide from one of my parents. So there was a weird, strange dichotomy in my relationship with my instrument and what I did. So I thought at one point in my, when I was coming up, that for me to be a drummer would be a bad thing that would send me straight to hell. You know, it, it, it gets, it gets a kind of more complicated than that, but it was never one instance say, yeah, I'm going to do this for a living. It just sort of morphed into that. When I started making more money than my father did, only then did I, did I let my dad know that I was a drummer. Because my dad, when I was growing up, he was very clear about it. If you were in the music, if you were a musician, you were either uh, a drug addict or had questionable sexual tendencies or all the above, you know, a racist. You like black. My dad was very, 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 uh, he was, you know, my father was essentially from the hills of Tennessee. Raised him, you know, educated himself, raised himself, taught himself his business. He was very, very hands-on fundamentalist kind of guy. Loving, sweet guy. Never, never, you know, my mom absorbed all the dysfunction from my dad's alcoholism, which caused her later on. But anyway, uh, consequently, uh, it wasn't until I started making more money than my father did, my, did my dad become aware that I was a drummer. And uh, he eventually came and heard me play and was very, he was very taken with it then, but it was only on that level. He could, he could relate, relate to it that once I started, when I was financially successful, he thought, it, he looked at it in a different way then because that was his defining element. That was what he measured it by. That was his metric. Once I made a made money doing it, he thought, oh, well, I'm all in, you know where he didn't have that perception before. He didn't even view it as something where someone that did that would be successful and make money. He viewed it as someone who did that would have long hair, didn't take baths with a hippie and had questionable, uh, you know, hygiene and, and sexual preferences and was a drug addict. And he didn't make any distinctions until that day, until that time, you know. So that's a little I, oversimplification, but 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 it also gives makes you wonder or makes me wonder the fact that your your dedication to learning the drums while hiding it from your dad, like that speaks even volumes about the fact that how passionate you were and what how you learned the drums even though you had this obstacle. Yeah, I it it just meant for me that when my dad came home, he couldn't, and I had to move my drums into where the lawn shed in the back, the lawnmower and stuff, and I put my drums in there. And people think that uh, when I do the thing with my hand solo, that I was I was copping John Bonham. John Bonham's not the first person I heard play drums drums set with his hands. A gentleman by the name of Frosty who played with Lou Michaels. It was a it was a a, a duo. He played drums and. Lou Michaels played keyboards and he keep and played bass pedals with his feet. So it was only two people, but it sounded like three or four. That was the first person I ever heard play drums with his hands. The reason I started playing drums with my hands is so I could practice in the shed without my and, and towels over the drums without my dad hearing the drums. I, John Bonham was the first person I think that gained notoriety doing it, but. Um, and, and later on when I was playing before Zeppelin even came out, I was playing in a little high school and junior high bands and, uh, we had a conga player and he would sit up next to me and part of my drum solo, I'd reach over and play the congas while I was playing the kick drum and people would go, yeah. And so, oh, I thought that was cool. So I just started trying and start incorporating it in, into the kit, you know? 
it was a little harder to play the drums with a, with a steel hoop on them than the congas, but you know, I worked my way around it. But that's how that evolved. And that was that was a, a, a necessity as a mother of invention, so to speak. So when everybody asks me, well, you give John Bonham, you never give John Bonham credit for that. Well, I give John Bonham all the credit in the universe. He could change the complexion of contemporary rock music as we know it. He's the unquestioned king in my genre of music and probably, you know, will always be. And this was well before I had these these feelings about John Bonham before he ever passed away. So he didn't have to die to get to that status in most drummers' minds, you know. But I give my father the credit because if not for him, uh, you know, about my hiding the fact that I was a drummer for my dad, I would have never even, it would have never even occurred to me, you know. It was only my fellow musicians that encouraged me to do it on stage, you know, or to incorporate it, you know. So, and it wasn't that I was before my time. It was just something that just happened to happen. Like some of the stupid stuff that I come up with on two bass drums. It wasn't on brilliant or anything because everything in the universe is already there. There's nothing that's been made that he didn't make. So everything that's that's been created has been created already. It's just the lucky ones are the ones that really put their nose to the grindstone and find it. That put themselves in the position to catch the download when it when it falls from from the guy that created everything. And so I just felt that I was, by that dedication you mentioned, and it really wasn't like dedication, it was just something that I loved. My mom would come out to my drum room and pull me out by the, my, by the scuff of my neck and say, Tommy, yeah, it's time to eat. And as soon as I'd finished lunch, I was right back out there. It wasn't that I had to put a timer and I'm saying, I'm gonna put two hours in on you know rudiments today. It just happened, you know, because it was just, I was, it was really my main focus, you know, and I just it 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 gratified me in ways, and that I couldn't describe. And when I couldn't do something, I didn't take for no no for an answer. And I'm not super drumistic person. There's holes in my playing. There's some guys that are so gifted that have such giftings that I don't. I'm not discounting whatever gifting that God has given me. I'm great, very grateful. But mine, uh, I have weaknesses in my playing, when it, and it would make take me three weeks to do something that somebody else may figure out in three days or three minutes, you know. But I was of the attitude that no matter how long it took me, I would not take no for an answer. When I'd leave my drum room, I always tried to come out of there with something that I played that I hadn't heard somebody else play before. That was my main goal. As I became more and more, uh, not accomplished, but just more uh, adept around the instrument, I was able to take the ideas that I was getting and actually play them to where that I could hear them instead of just hear them hearing in my head. Later on, now I take a pick up my drum machine and I program what I'm hearing in my head, then go in my drum room and teach it to myself. Back then, I would hear things in my head and I would slowly develop and they were much more simple then, slowly to develop the, you know, the adequacy around the kit to be able to physically play it, you know. So it was kind of, again, reverse engineering. It wasn't, it was a lot of times driven more by music than trying to conquer this rudiment at, at 350 BPMs, you know? So that's why my playing is very strange and unusual to a lot of school guys because I came in kind of the back door, you know? Learning well, the, drums, like any instrument, it's it's a very regimented, especially drums, because it's all math, you know, it's one and twos, you know, it's all it is, it's all math. And it's very curriculum centered as learning most anything. And so when you come up and you don't have a curriculum centered approach to your instrument, strange things occur, you know, and guys like Tommy Igo, you know, the he's like the personification of 
by the book drumming, you know, all the kid has to be ergonomic. I'm a nightmare to that guy. I'm sure he looks at me, he said, whatever you hear this guy playing, whatever you see him doing, do not do it. And that's very firm and very solid advice. You know, I, I wonder, tell me about the, the, the double bass drum, because obviously when I first saw you, it was probably in the early 70s, maybe 73, mm -hmm. it was probably in concert or rock concert, mm -hmm. Black Oak, Arkansas was playing and, and you were very noticeable, not because you had a double bass drum because other drummers did, but mm -hmm. you tended to use your double bass drum more than most people did. Like it almost seemed like some people had the two bass drums as a decoration or as a visual thing. Whereas when I heard you play, it was quite obvious that you were using both your bass drums quite a bit. Well, I felt very much that same way too. And that's no disrespect to Ginger Baker, who's a, you know, he's famous for two bass drums and he played things on two bass drums and Louis Belson, you know, even before that. So can I ask you, when you mentioned Louis Belson, when, when I saw you with Black Oak Arkansas, your drum kit was um, kind of reminded me of a Louis Belson drum kit with the bass drum and one tom. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I didn't copy Louis Belson. I didn't know Louis Belson had that same setup until later because somebody pointed it out and I got to meet Louis and, and hung out with him and stuff in Chicago at the Czech Chicago Drum Show one year. And just a sweetheart, one of the sweetest people you, you, you know, you'd ever meet. Forget the fact that he's a famous drummer, just one of the sweetest people. And he wants to, you know, wants to hug you and he wants to share and give you, you know, ah, just, I was so touched by him. I, I learned one of the greatest lessons from Louis Belson. This is how you treat people when people look up to you. Because a lot of people that are looked up to, they forget how to treat people that are looking up to them. And he taught, taught me a very valuable lesson, no matter how, I think that if somebody's impressed with what I do, I don't have a very high opinion of them. If they're impressed with what I do, how could I have a very high opinion of them? But I have to pull myself out of that, that hole, because that's what that is, that's a lie, and treat them with respect and stuff. And I learned that from Louis Belson. Uh, but no, I had single tom and two floor toms and 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 two bass drum and one bass drum with a, a and and when I was when I switched started playing with two bass drums and I just took that one bass drum and put my hi hat on the right side and my bass drum on the left side. It was the same thing that I'd approach when I when I was trying to orchestrate the rudiments around the kit. I said, "Why don't I'm going to practice my drums and the things that I've learned so far, but I'm going to put my bass drum on the left and my hi hat on the right." So that because th to me the rudiments were teaching my left hand, my I'm a right hand dominant uh, behind the kit. You need to be non-dominant. You need to have both both sides need to be equal, and that's what the rudiments really teach you: the left to right, you know, the, the, the to, to separate the two, you know, and and the polyrhythm and thing and, and rhythmic thing and all that. And that's what the rudiments teach you. And they're the they're the language of our instrument. You can't go very far on a drum set without having a fun a good fundamental foundation in the rudiments. And so I thought, well, hey, the same must be true for my feet, you know. So. I put my bass drum on the left and my hi-hat on the right. Not long after that, a good friend of mine decided we would set our drum sets facing one another and, and we'd play drum battles. And we learned he was a better drummer than I am. He thought I was better because I could twirl, but he was actually far better. And I learned so much from him. His name was Robert Jackson. And he doesn't even play anymore, you know, but he left his kit over there and I borrowed his, his bass drum when he wasn't using it. And I put the bass drum where the hi-hat was. 
And I just started experimenting. And that's all it was, was just trying to teach my left foot to do the same thing that my right foot could do. And it was experiment. And it wasn't until I started doing the silly exercises that I was doing in my rehearsal room, jamming around with our little junior high and high school band when I was growing up. And they would say, wow, that sounded crazy. Why don't you use that in a song? And so it was more people like that that would hear it and would think, wow, I couldn't tell where that was coming from. That sounded like two or three drummers playing at the same time. That's what people would say when I started doing it live in clubs and stuff and on stage. And people said, wow, where's that sound coming from? Well, where I heard it the first time was with a, there was a band called the Flower Power that were playing at that same festival. And there was a drummer named, by the name of John Rand. They were a local band. And they were called the Flower Power. That'll tell you how long ago this was. <laughs> well, he was playing. And after he played, it was outdoors. And I was standing next to a, 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 a storage building or something. It was out on the field. And I was hearing him play things on the bass drum. It sounded like he was going, that's what I heard him playing. And I went up afterwards and I said, man, he had two bass drums, but he looked like he was only playing one of them. And I said, man, that's some crazy stuff you're playing. Where did you learn that? And he says, what are you talking about? I said, when you're going, shut it, put it, blah. He said, I never played that. Well, what it was, was that where I was standing was creating this perfect echo or re repeat off of his drum set. And mostly what it was picking up, because the only drum that was mic'd on the stage was his bass drum. And there was only one bass drum mic'd. And so he was only he was only playing one, and what I was hearing wasn't what he was playing, but it was parts that I had been hearing in my head and had been trying to work out. And when I heard him play, I thought, so it is possible. So I went straight back into my rehearsal room and I found a way to play those things that I was hearing in my head. What that was was not any genius or anything on my part or this forward thinking. It was me hearing something or hearing what I thought I heard and taking these ideas that I was getting in my head that didn't really make sense as much from a musical in a musical contest as much as just as an exercise drumming tool learning tool exercise and all of a sudden people were encouraging me to start applying it in musical context when they would hear it done you know and then once I became a little bit more proficient with my left foot it allowed me to do the first thing I learned to do with a pair of drumsticks was to twirl them I couldn't play a single stroke roll but I could twirl them and so what that allowed me to do later on when I saw that I could get attention, when Buddy Rich brought hit, hit what brought Buddy Rich's drum kit to the front of the stage was his sheer precision. That's what put Buddy Rich in the front of the band and got him in his own band, which is, and that was his show. It was sheer precision. Joe Morello was, uh, he was a groove cat, man. He was smooth and flow and, but he didn't have the flamboyance that came. People didn't appreciate his sheer precision because he was playing with a lot of it. He was probably, from a musical perspective, in my estimation, far more musical drummer, I may get thrown under the bus by this than Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich was Buddy Rich was footloose and fancy three. He was hell bit big band man and had such just blinding precision. Well, uh, guys like um, Louis Belson, he had a double, another bass drum up there, but he really didn't play it. And so what I wanted to make sure that I did is when I heard these ideas and I started using two bass drums, I said, this is what two bass drums are for. And I had, and I would always try to come out of my rehearsal room with something that I hadn't heard someone do on two bass drums. And that was my goal.
to play something on the two kick drums that I hadn't heard someone else play. It's not that it was anything new. It's just that I had so assigned that to it, orchestrated it to a different atypical part of the drum set, which was the left bass drum instead of my left hand. And so I started taking, substituting half of the notes that I would play with my, at a bar of 16 with my left hand and play them with my left foot. And so it sounded completely different and it sounded heavier to me, and it was more in keeping with the music that I was more and more gravitating toward, which is heavier, 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 faster, faster, faster. John Bonham comes out, and what John Bonham was doing was incredible. It changed, and it consolidated that same way of thinking, because what, what separated John Bonham from all the other drummers of his time, Ginger Baker and all the West, is that he was doing that with one bass drum, but he, but he was only using two notes. He was doing a triplet where I was doing a triplet was bat that that on the kick drums and making a four, it would become a quad. It would be right, left, right. And the scenario here, John Bonham was going doot, doot on the bass drum, ba ba. It was still a quad, but he was doing half of the quad with one foot. It's easy to do a quad with two feet, but to do that with one foot and for John Bonham to do a triplet, everybody else would do the triplet with two of the beats up top, two of the three up top and one on the kick drum. I heard Bertie Rich the first time I sat behind Bertie Rich and heard him play. He was doing that and it was really amazing. Well, what bon John Bonham did, he just flip flopped that rudiment. He put two on the bass drum and one on the top. And so it becomes it's the same figure, it's a triplet. He just reassigned it to another part of the drum kit. And that's what separated John Bonham at the time from all the other cats and does to this day, along with his genius creativity, you know, the band that he was playing with. There are so many things that contribute to who John Bonham is and what he became and, and the, 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 the place of reverence that he deserves at the very top of the heap, you know. Not a competition thing, but the cream rises to the top. The truth always finds its way to the top. Yeah. And so when I heard John Bonham, I said, yeah, this is the way to go. You know, Lord help us if John Bonham would have had two kick drums, you know, whoa, what would have happened? You know, people say, well, he didn't need it. Not that he needed it. I didn't need it. No one needs it. But who needs two drumsticks? That's why drumsticks come two to a pair. If you could do on one what you could do on two, there would be only one drumstick. When you go to the music store, you'd come out with one drumstick in the pack. You have two hands. You have two feet. You don't always have to use two feet with your left foot just for the hi-hat, you know. So those little things, it wasn't any brilliant thinking or I'm going to say I'm going to bushwhack them all. I'm going to be the first to the dinner table or anything like that. Nothing at all like that. It was just being... In a, in, a, in a posture, even unknowingly, in a posture of catching the download when it came, you know. John Bonham, to me, his, his the, the coolest thing about John Bonham is his creativity, you know, because he's not an incredibly complex drummer, not a lot of, te not, not, not severely technical what he was playing. When you put it in unison, along with the other things that John Paul Jones was playing, Robert Plant's ridiculous phrasing, Jimmy Page's crazy guitar playing in the production and the ideas. Oh, it's so much more of the individual parts being greater, uh, the whole being so much greater than the individual parts. And all the individual parts are sheer genius. Man, that's what happens when you you make iconic music that stands like, sounds like it was recorded yesterday. It's be over, it, it transcends generations. You know, you have kids, I see kids, uh, you know, six-year-old kids with Led Zeppelin t-shirts on. And it's not because they get, they got, their dad gave it to them. It's because they wanted it, you know? 
I, I wonder, with, with your history and all the different great bands you've played with, do you feel like you reached close to that point with any of the bands? No, no, no. I don't put myself anywhere near uh, anywhere in that, that company. That's some rarefied air. I, no, I'd pass out trying to trying to be uh, exist in that rarefied air zone. I don't. I, I'm not my favorite drummer. I, I don't have. I, I, I'm not amazed at anything that I play or anything that I, I think I'm. I'm more of an overachiever than anything else. You know, I've been chronically blessed. I'm. You're looking at. Uh, uh, I'm a. Uh, a, a product of grace, God's grace. Uh, I, I don't. I only take credit for the mistakes. I've just tried to seize the moment, you know, <laughs> not not take the moment for granted. To be appreciative of, of 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 whatever I'm gifted with, and just try to maximize my strengths, minimize my weaknesses, which far outweigh my strengths, you know, uh, and just try to take advantage uh, and be feel at least somewhat worthy of the opportunity, you know. That's that's pretty much how I view myself, you know. But as a young man, did you have an idea when you were in in that band in New Orleans before you joined Black Oak, Arkansas? Did you have an idea what you wanted to do with music, where you wanted to go? I had an idea of what I wanted to. I had something to express these ideas that were uh, that I was getting. They they're very, I mean by today's standards, if you listen to what's being played on two bass drums or in that same genre of music, it's what I do is child's play. You know, even if it's at the very highest level of what I'm capable of doing, it's child's play because the bar has been raised so much as it rightfully should be. And it makes me really, really proud to be a drummer more so now than it, than uh, I have ever been in the past. You know, um, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to say with, with what I was doing. I wanted to reach people that were drummers, but more importantly, I wanted to reach people that weren't drummers. And I think John Bonham really personifies that. Everyone knows who you don't have to be a, a world class drummer to, to appreciate John Bonham. You don't have to be when that intro to rock and roll starts, you know, or you don't have to be a world class drummer or a professional drummer to be humbled by John Bonham. There are lay people that, that get John Bonham lays knocks of crazy every day, you know. And that to me is the real bee's knees. When you can, when you can touch someone uh, that really has an idea or a good grasp of your craft and someone that doesn't have a clue, that to me is, is the, that's the real, you know, the universal stamp of approval. Because you're doing both. You're putting down some serious, serious substance and 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 when people that don't know that don't have a deep understanding of the substance are still impacted by it, no pun intended. That to me is a real, you know, that that to me is a success. You know, I think Ringo Starr achieved that in a different way. If you the Beatles would not have been Beatles, the Beatles without Ringo Starr. When I was coming up, my record collection was relegated to only kick-ass drumming. So I had no Beatle records in my collection. I knew who the Beatles were. If it didn't have, and, and of course the music was probably some of the worst music you'd ever hear, but the drumming was crazy, you know? <laughs> so, and it wasn't until later on that I understand that, mu that drums are a music, an instrument of primarily of accompaniment and it's about music and they should be musically driven, you know? Not, I don't have anything against solos or, or these crazy technicians and things. I'm a, I'm a, I mean, nothing humbles me more than hearing these young cats come out and they, they defy gravity on, from one beat to the next. It, it's, it's astounding to me, you know? 
and uh, to hear someone do that and come at you from a musical perspective is too. Randy Rhodes personifies that uh, from a guitar perspective. Eddie Van Halen very much personifies that. Con amazing composer, incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, creative, diligent. I mean, crazy uh, facility on their instrument. I mean, how many people do you know do that? Back in the old days, the Chopins and the Mozart, they're few. Those guys could write crazy stuff. Very few of them could play it. With the guys that could write that stuff, they very few of them were capable of playing it. But to find somebody that can compose that kind of stuff, say Eddie Van Halen can comp compose that kind of music, those riffs, put down a solo like he puts down in all of those crazy Van Halen tunes, and touch. People that don't know anything about guitar, that that that's 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 the real deal, you know. It 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 is really exclusive on one hand, and on the other hand, it's 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 almost universal. It's for the very few, yet it's for everybody. It's it who you know who does that? A handful of people, and the most all those people that I mentioned are the ones that I've had the great privilege of working with or getting to know that have that kind of blessing and gifting they know exactly where it came from and they're so they're consequently really humble people they know exactly where it came from all they did is they took the gift and it's all it's required of you is to share the gift when 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 you get given something all that's required of you is to give it away because there's plenty to go around you know there's plenty to go around and when somebody does that randy rhodes incredible facility incredible songwriter and an incredible human being you know, when people like have that kind of gifting, they somewhere know in their psyche that it has nothing whatsoever to do with them, that they were in the right place at the right time. And all they have to do is be a good steward of the gift, you know, and nurture it and, and be diligent about it. Treat it with the, what, the, for what it is, is a great gift that they, they, they did nothing to deserve it. They did nothing to deserve it. And when you have that attitude about something, you enhance the gift and 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 you bring glory to the gift and you pass it on. And that's all that's the only requirement. Not be a dick about it, you know, and 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 hide it and say, you know, and, and when people put a pet put you on a pestle that you want to, you know, be, be pound on your chest, you get up there in a posture of thankfulness and gratitude, and and then you have a whole completely different perspective on it and that's the battle that i've always tried to fight is people want to keep push, pushing you up on a pedestal and all you want to do is jump off of it because when people put you on a pedestal everybody's looking at you so you damn well do the right thing you know i wonder from that young kid who is collecting albums with great drummers at what point did you learn to serve the song as opposed to be the drummer I don't know that I have fully learned to do that because to learn to serve the song, boy, you have to really have a really vast, deep understanding of music theory and or a lot of years behind you, you know. And I hear young, really young drummers and young musicians today playing that are so far, their playing is so far above their time on this planet. It's so humbling to me. Um, it wasn't until... And again, it wasn't a defined moment. It wasn't that I'm going to start becoming a musical drummer. It was I started realizing uh, and starting appreciating guys that were like Ringo Starr and guys that were doing something that you're not going to hear somebody teaching at PIT or at MIT even because what these guys are bringing to the table isn't something that you can learn. 
it's something that is is part of who you are it's part of your character it's part of your dna it's 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 part of your personality and it's something that's in your heart it's a gift that's in your heart and you're just trying to express it and nobody can teach you how to do that you can go someplace and learn how to be a great speech writer or you can go someplace and learn how to be a great orator. But if you're a great orator and don't have somebody else writing the speeches for you, it, it's not really, doesn't really mean that much, does it? If you're a great orator and you have something in your heart of value that really needs to be conveyed to the to whoever, then that's that's what I'm talking about. That's the yin and the yang. That's the guy that can write a great song and can play the hell out of that same song. To me, that that that's what separates the uh, the really really legends i mean that word gets used so much and you know really legend i don't find myself anywhere in that category so it was it wasn't a defined moment when i said i'm gonna it just when i came became a lot more obsessed with or concentrated on playing in really good time because i had a terrible problem of time of, of way before clicks and stuff um uh, meeting that that hanging being able to play intent intensively without speeding up or being in, being able to play. I mean, you put a click on John Bonham and it doesn't stay with the click, but it doesn't matter because you don't care. You know, it's got so much genius going on. It, it, it supersedes all that, you know, but in my case, that stuff doesn't come natural to me. So I have to be, I, I live with a click. If I, if it's not going, I hear it in my head because I've just spent so much time listening and, and working with a click, you know, and in a drummer's perspective, you, you you once you become aware of that and you realize that has to happen because that's where the precision comes from. That's what makes people want to get up and dance, the feel. John Bonham would stay way, way on the backside of it. And he would do more between not on the downbeats, but but the E and uh, between the one and the two. In a 16th note grid, and sometimes in a 32nd note grid, when you have that kind of refinement in your natural sense of time, which I believe John Bonham obviously has, 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 um, he's still alive, very much alive. Uh, it's it's something, that's something you've born with. And that's one of those are the guys I'm talking about that can learn to play something. for. It takes me three weeks. Some guys can learn to play it in three days or three minutes, you know. But uh, and so that's always it was when I started really learning that I need to really play good solid time before anything else happens, because it doesn't matter how fast or how fancy or or anything or how difficult, how many notes I can get, you know, in if it doesn't come out on the one, if it's not clean, if it doesn't breathe, is if it doesn't do something around the singer or enhance this or enhance that, then it has no business being there, you know, and the engineer, doesn't, I mean, the producer goes, uh, Tom, they could, that was great, but could you save it for your solo record, you know? <laughs> That kind of stuff. Once I came to that conclusion, my record collection automatically started blossoming in, in the music that I listened to. I listened to the music instead of just the drum part, you know, and it improved everything having to do with my drumming by becoming uh, a student of music rather than just a student of drums or a student of rudiments, you know. Does that happen one year with Black Oak, Arkansas, and you do all those albums in the very beginning, or does it come later when you start working with other musicians? 
it happened to some degree with Black Oak, and and you know, I, I don't mean to 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 disregard those guys because I I don't sing their praises because of the experiences I've had I had one with legal experiences and and trying to fight for my life literally physically and and career wise professionally. So I it, you know, there for a long time I had a chip on my shoulder about those guys, but you know, I have to take my hat off to them. They they provided a forum for me to to get around the world and people like that 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 instance that you mentioned. You know, Simon Phillips came up to me when. I first he said i heard you on this and he said man i couldn't figure out what you were doing when you hear that from someone like simon phillips you think oh my and you have to be thankful for that and so i'm thankful for that opportunity and i did come to some of these conclusions when i was working with that band because it sounded it was like getting a root canal so playing some of that music and listening to some of it it was it was awful you know uh, and, and i'm speaking to uh, in regarding myself too and so i was always trying to find a way to make it sound tighter and more cohesive and more musical and 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 trying to do whatever I could do to contribute to that end, you know? And so it became not something that I was trying to do, focus strictly on myself. I was trying to do whatever I could do that would, I think would help, I thought, make, make it just sound better to the people that were listening to, make it sound tighter, make it sound more listenable and just less obnoxious, you know? And so that's when I started listening more and more to the people that were around me rather than coming in and like a, a, a bull in a china shop and just trying to make everybody fit into whatever I was playing, which mean, meant most of the time they'd have to play less. I started listening more and more to what the other people were playing. In that case, I was going, ah, ah, does he have to play that, you know? And then uh, I went through a year and a half of lawsuits. And then my first gig back was with Pat Travers and I got around musicians and man it was like it was like uh it was like the rapture man it was like mu mu music people and music that Germanic music pat travers is brilliant i still feel that way today you know i mean it fell apart before right when it was on the precipice of going really really huge you know and it had to do with controlled substances and so forth and so on but uh be that as it may i learned so much working with pat and it was in that instant working with morris cowling who was a very busy bass player i had to stay out of the way a lot of times and in some cases because of morris's dexterity he could play things and would follow things and and it would encourage me to play patterns on the kick drums that i otherwise wouldn't play you know if you go back and listen to that early traverse stuff live stuff i mean there's some crazy a lot of notes going on but it somehow works you know and it's because we were paying attention, close attention to what each other was playing. And so it was then when I started listening a lot more to the people that I had the privilege and the blessing of being on the stage with, that then I started realizing, yeah, I, I can get better at this. I can get more, I can become a better drummer by staying out of this guy's ways. I can be a better drummer by playing, by playing less. I can be a better drummer by constantly thinking that I need to do something that's going to impress this drummer or that drummer. I started playing to the people in the nosebleed sections in the back of the venue instead of all the people in the front that were, you know, that had the cart cart launch tickets and so forth. And it 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 changes your your perception of 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 yourself and what your goals are. And I I pray for that was one of my main prayers, change my perceptions, change the way that I process what comes in so that I can respond in ways that are the best way for me to respond musically, you know. And when you get something that comes in, when you're playing with the likes of like Pat Travers and Pat Thrall and 
Morris Cowling, when you're working with people like David Coverdale and, and, and Steve Vise and, and John Sykes and, and, and oh, Jerry Moore. I mean, I, I go through, run through them so every now and again, I'll see my discography and I'll see a list of the people that I've worked with. And it's so humbling in front of me. I'm thinking, how could I ever end up in the company of those people? How, how did this happen? You ask, when did you decide that you were going to do this for a living? I never decided. It just kind of got decided for me, you know. But did you ever do anything else? No, I've never had any other job. No, it's the only job I've ever had. Well, when I was a kid, I cut lawns, you know, and had a, you know, a paper route and stuff like that. But no, I've never, it's been, I'm a lifelong musician. I've never had any other gig. That's amazing. Albeit starving in for long periods of time and so forth and so on. But no, and I, I've made it, I've done it making obscene amounts of money, you know. Uh, and I've done it making uh, starving. So it, that wasn't, I, I learned early on that I wasn't motivated by money, you know, and I've gone, I've had some difficulty in my relationships with my past wife, ex-wife, you know, because I'd take a jig, gig, I'd pass on, you know, train loads full of money and take a gig where it was offering much less money, but I liked the music. People don't understand that, you know. How much did of of I don't want to get too into the legal hassles you had with Black Oak Arkansas, but it basically was a situation where you wanted to leave the band. They didn't want you to leave. They threatened legal action. You had to stop playing for a year and a, a year, year and a half. How much did that experience affect who you are as a musician? It helped me a lot at the time. Uh, it scared me to death because it wasn't the legal stuff that I was worried about. I was physically threatened and it wasn't by them so much because the guys in the band, they were just puppet. They were really mind controlled by this guy that was the manager. So, and he was one of the guys that was, they grew up with and and he's like a Jim Jones cat, man. Got a couple, a few screws loose, but he threatened my well being when I finally got the nerve to say, I'm, I'm out of here. Um, he made it clear to me, and I had seen the way business people in other business situations they had, had signed to a manager previously this, and how they got out of those management agreements. I knew that when he said to threaten my well-being, if you don't work in this band, you're not going to work with any band. I said, well, what do you mean? He, he said, well, you need your arms, don't you? And so when people physically threaten you, and I knew this guy was probably pretty serious because I had seen him in action with with in other instances with people that stood in the way and so he looked at it as a direct threat to his well-being and uh that of his family for me to to leave and once i finally did i snuck out in the dark and I, anyway it was something that i had never encountered in my when when in past in, instances when i want to leave the band oh oh man sorry to you go and well i wish you wouldn't and you get mad at the guy but you understood you know good go and a couple of days would go by and you say it's okay man go do your thing you know you have all all good things gonna happen for you you know so forth and so on well when i wanted to leave this band and my well-being was threatened i'm thinking it scared the hell out of me and i didn't know that the business operated that way you know and there were a lot of anomalies in that. And when I was coming up, I all I wanted as many drumsticks as I could go through and many cymbals and heads as I could go through. I'm a happy camper. Well, that lasted about a year until I saw what was going on, you know. Anyway, it uh, it really taught me some real hard lessons. That was the last management contract I've ever signed. Not there's anything wrong with management. 
good management is a blessing and, and, and an attribute for any musician coming up. But I learned to make my own decisions. I learned to be responsible for what's happening in my career and not rely on someone. Well, blame it on the manager. Well, I can't be a snotty nosed drug crazed hippie drummer and say, well, I was out playing and I can be a dick or I cannot take care of my, my family or my business because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a artistic person. <laughs> It's work. Snap out of it. But that band did work a lot. I don't know how, living in Canada, it's hard for me to gauge how big they were. But you guys did like 250 dates a year and worked At least. all the time, right? Um, yeah. Then you joined Pat Travers, and there's a momentum with Pat where things are happening. You join the band, and they're basically moving up. Um, well, when was... I joined Pat, Pat had just come out of England. He, No one knew who Pat didn't know. Pat Travers from Adam's House Cat when I started with Pat. Uh, I, I mean, in fact, I remember all the fan mail would come in. It would be all addressed to me because I was the only. I had a little notoriety from the sh things that you had mentioned, you know. And again, Pat wasn't established here. He broke out of England actually. His manager, David Hemmings, not the actor, but he was partners with an uh, art economy management, the same company management company at the time that handled Judas Priest and a couple other bits. And so they were up and coming too. And and David Hemmings, who was Pat's manager, he's since deceased, may he rest in peace. Um, I met him when I first went to England, the first time I toured there, and I was with Black Oak, and we were supporting, of all bands, Black Sabbath. He was the band's luggage guy. I met him on an elevator with Ozzy Osbourne and... Um, Tony Iommi, I think, wrote on the other I just landed, and this was in Glasgow, Scotland, and it was the first time I'd ever been, I just started with Black Oak, and it was the first time I'd been out of the country. I was a kid. And anyway, I had met David Hemmings in that elevator. I didn't know that later on, he was going to become a big time manager. Uh, and, and he was the one that knew, and from that meeting and from that experience of us supporting Black Sabbath on that tour, I got to know David Hemmings a little bit. He got to know me and hear me play. Well, I didn't know that later on he would be a big time manager. He was the one, Pat Travers said to David Hemmings, I want to get a different drummer. And Pat David, his, well, who do you have in mind? And he said, I want to get Tommy Aldridge. My name came up. David Hemmings says, I know that guy. So the moral of that story is when you meet the guy that carries the luggage, be nice to him. You know? <laughs> but it's, it's amazing. Yeah, that's how that came about. David Hemmings gives me a call. I'm in the studio in hiding from hiding from this manager and all these lawsuits and stuff, carrying around a briefcase and going to depositions and all this, that, and the other. And the day to the, almost to the day that I, that the lawsuits were, my lawyer called me up and said, Tommy, we have a settlement. And I didn't want any money. I just wanted them off my back. I wanted my contractual freedom. Anyway, um, I get a phone call. And that same day, I get a call from David Hemmings. Tommy, you remember me? I said, David, yes, what's going on, man? And he says, well, I'm working with this guitar player, Pat Travers. And I said, yeah, send me something to listen to. I had no idea who had never heard of him. The next day in FedEx, I get a, a couple of roughs, uh, uh, think, makes no difference, or getting better. And I said, whoa, this is cool. I said, I'm in, man. And I just got my freedom. And I flew a couple of days later, I flew out to New York and got together. We jammed out with Pat and Mars. And it was heaven. It was heaven. I was kind of rusty because I'd been playing lawyer for the last year and a half and scared and poopless thinking my career was going to be over, you know, and this person threatening me. And I learned so much from that time, although it was it was 
I also learned how to be very anxious, you know. So a lot of, you know, things came to, I was deal, de, uh, faced with a lot of things at a very young age to deal with, you know, and uh, I, I managed through God's grace, not not my own. I've always been on my mom's prayer list and, and a lot of other people. So it was kind of by proxy, you know, I was, I was getting grace, you know, well before I, we never deserve it, but even way, way, way before I even thought about deserving it, you know. Well, I, I wonder, you, you talk about, not deserving it or not thinking too highly of your playing but obviously you made impact on people who who called you to say yeah i saw him opening up for so and so and i want to work with them whether it be ozzy osbourne or pat travers um why do you not have that confidence so tell me about the confidence it's not lack of confidence it's a reality even movie stars get impressed when they go and see a good movie. They become fans of the of, of their fellow movie stars that are in that, that, that film that they just that just put them on their knees. And I think in Ozzy's case, not a lot of it had to do with Ozzy. I was living in England at the time because Ozzy, and I don't want to throw Ozzy under the bus, uh, but there were things that transpired. Ozzy was on that same tour that David Hem that I met David Hemmings on. So maybe Ozzy saw reactions from the crowd. When I go on stage, I know there's a huge PA. When I hit a bass drum, it's going through 500,000 watts of PA. There's kids out there. They're very impacted by, by all this, this amazing light show that I spend hours working on light cues with God. I take advantage when I say I maximize my strengths and minimize my weaknesses. I know what attracted me. And when I hear somebody or when I hear something that I like or see something that I like, and I said, well, why can't I be a drummer? that gives people something to see as well as something to hear. And about that time, MTV comes out and in dovetails, video and music, all of a sudden there's an unprecedented dovetail, dovetailing in, in our industry had never happened before. So perfect for, for Uncle T.A. here, because I'm doing all this crazy stuff. My other bass drum gives me freedom to do this. That other bass drum also opens up uh, rudimental ideas or, or ideas in a musical context that I wouldn't have otherwise, otherwise had. These are all gifts. This isn't heavy duty. It's not, it's like a beautiful woman. She doesn't go to the gym, to, you know, to get that way. She may go to the gym to stay that way, but she's born that way. It's called a gift. And if in, in a truly beautiful person that's born beautiful, they come to that conclusion pretty early on and they learn that it's a gift and they're thankful for it. And they try to be not conceited, but thankful and use their attributes and their gifts in positive ways. When, who knows, maybe Osborne was just as impacted by what I played on, what I did on that stage as the people in the audience. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's not magic. It's not, you know, smoke and mirrors, but it's, it's not unpremeditated either. I know that when a kid comes backstage and meets me, a young aspiring drummer, he says, wow, I thought you would be bigger. I've heard that, you know, I'm five, nine and a half, weigh 137 pounds. It's because when I hit a bass drum, it's going through 500 watts, 1,000 watts of PA. And I've rehearsed all these moves with the lighting guy. So where people say, well, he does the same drum solo. Hey, when I go here, every time I heard Neil Peart, he did the same freaking drum solo. If he wasn't doing that, he wouldn't be Neil Peart. Almost every John Bonham solo I've ever heard, to John Bonham's credit, he didn't live to be 72 years old, so he didn't have to bore everybody with his solos over and over and over again. Every John Bonham solo I've ever heard has the same elements in it. That's who John Bonham is. I want to hear those elements, you know? 
And so uh, if I get nailed with being a little uh, repetitive, it's because I've worked out something that works, not just for the drummers, but for the people that come to the show, because it's the video age we live in. It's more and moreover, it, it's so much more than that. People's careers were destroyed by MTV. Others people's careers were bullied by MTV. I always tried to give something for people to get hooked, get hooked into the, from the audio perspective is what is the visual perspective or the video perspective. Because when you give people that, you kind of grab them by, by their shirt and pull them up on the stage with you. How can they say no, you know? So I'm not so stupid to think that whatever shortcomings that I have in my rudimental program or my technique program, I'm not above using these other things to put glory on in, in, in my camp. Uh, that you know, I'll take credit for that. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good at that. But I do the due diligence with the lighting guy, and with the PA guy. When I go to the hand part, we have to bring the kick drone level down, have to bring the tom level up, take the gates out, all these different things. I've learned to use the resources and the facilities and whatever you want to call them that are at my disposal to have the biggest, most comprehensive impact that I can when I go on the stage. I benefit from that, absolutely, but also the people in the room benefit from that. So it's something to be said for that. You know, David Lee Roth, I think, is very much the same way. David Lee Roth is not Robert Plant, but David Lee Roth has has had serious impact. People think that David Lee Roth is a Jim Danny uh, ripoff. He's not. He took what he saw from Jim Danny and he made it better. People take what have taken what I do and they've made it better. I applaud them, you know. How do you get upset or mad about that? You hear it in their playing, even if they don't give you the credit, you know, and I don't, shouldn't get the credit. The guy should get the credit. I don't you deserve any of the credit. It was already created. I just happened to, 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 to see and hear the creation and grab it, you know, and do something with it. It's like John McLaughlin, I think, said that best. He said, everything has always been, already been created. There's nothing new. He just, I was just fortunate enough to find or uncover something. A treasure. But there are a lot of drummers out there who who have not had half the opportunities that you have had. I mean, when you think about the bands you've worked with, whether it be Ozzy, Whitesnake, Pat Travers, Gary Moore, I mean, it's an impressive list. What is it about you that, that you think those people sought you out, that they wanted you to be the drummer? Well, I know in, in, in David Coverdale's case, and I don't want to accused David Coverdale of having a really awful taste in drummers, because if you look at who's who's worked with him over the years, that would obviously not be true, because he has he's, he's an incredible musician, but it, it astounds me, that astounds me, David Coverdale was there when I was working with Ozzy when Rennie was alive, you know, David Coverdale was there in Deep Purple when I was playing with Black Oak at the Us Festival, I don't know, I don't know, well, uh, but Gary Moore was there when I was playing with Pat Travers, Gary Moore was on those dates. We were supporting Gary Moore in some of those shows. He was in the so on the side of the stage. I don't know. You tell me. Um, in Steve Ice's case, he got the gig with with White Snake, you know, and I was already he was stuck me with, with me from the on-go. In Randy Rhodes' case, Randy Rhodes was no one knew who he was. When I first heard Randy Rhodes, I heard him in Don Arden's office when I was living in England working with Gary because Gary was signed to the same label. And I heard uh, uh, Don Arden invited me to the office. They asked me if I could put drums on this record that had already been recorded. He wanted to replace the drums. I had no idea who it was. There was no vocals on it, but there was this guitar playing in his rhythm section. I said, gee whiz, who is this guitar player? 
And that's where the first time I'd heard Randy Rhodes' name. Well, that was all the other Ozzy Osbourne stuff that they were trying to replace the drums and the bass on before it was even released, you know? So that's how fast they were trying to get those guys off of those records. But I didn't know that at the time, you know, I was working with Gary. But uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it, it, amount, it amazes me. I ask myself that, you know, Ted Nugent's another one, you know, he, he told me a story I talked to him not too long ago. And he said, yeah, all these people were talking, we're raving about the, the, this kid over playing drums. And Ted said, that's the first time he heard me. You know, we did thousands of shows when I was with Black Oak supporting Ted Nugent, you know, but I don't know. It, it, it amazes me because there's no rocket science going on. You know, it's not, there's no smoke and mirrors. Um, it's, it's nothing that hadn't been rudimentally established you know, decades or, you know, thousands of years before. It's just, uh, I had a little, little niche of something to say, and I just tried, get, tried my best to say it, you know. I wanted to give people something to, that sounded like it looked and looked like it sounded. And that's not the easiest thing in the world to do, no. But um, you find a way to do it, you know. If this foot is covering what this hand could be doing it gives you a chance to to make a fool of yourself and, and and bring the you know bring the eyes into the program and again with the with with that was that's my response to that the video age coming in there were a lot of things that made the Beatles who they are there are a lot of things there's so many components over and above outside of who Led Zeppelin is who the individuals that comprise it even outside of the music that contributed to the incredible stature and the pinnacle that they deserve, well deservedly uh, inhabit to this very day. But there are things that they have no control over. There are, there are things I don't believe in circumstance. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe that uh, that there's a plan for, for, for each individual. And the, the closer you get to the, the one that has laid that plan out for you, the more successful you'll become in that plan coming to fruition. But there's so many things outside of who we are and what we do that have an impact on how, how things come about, you know. And my White Snake's a perfect example of that. Here I go again, biggest White Snake song ever. Huge tune. It's it's David Coverdale's calling card. He co-wrote it with Bernie Marsden, who was in, in, in with White Snake fifteen thousand iterations ago. Here I go again was was rec recorded on a White Snake record thousands of right snake records previously why wasn't it the biggest song in the world then it happened to dovetail with the same thing that i mentioned he changed the entire band the same people that recorded that version of it weren't in the band when we did the video the original version of it with i think ian pace played drums on it or maybe because your power i don't even remember but it's the same song but in a different time, in a different era, it wasn't the video age, it wasn't MTV. So there were so many things and so many people that weren't outside of the music, lawyers, who knows what contributed to that momentum and that impetus that, that, that created that song being what it ultimately became. I mean, it's like, it's like wedding, what married people's, it's, it played at more weddings, you know, and, and, and it's the soundtrack to so many people's lives. But it's been recorded on albums previously by different bands, you know, by by different musicians in the same band, you know. So who knows? There are so many elements and so many factors that contribute to the way things are that 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 really are far beyond the people that are actually centrally in, in, involved in it. So it's it's a hard question for me to answer. But that's what I uh, put 
a lot of my success down to just being able to get the best out of, of circumstances that, that, that have uh, been afforded. I've spent my entire life on the road. Those 256 days a year that I averaged with Black Oak, that paid off. Hard work pays off. Knowledge, hard work pays off. I learned things over those years. And so I believe that, 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 that the, my due diligence and going out and going on stage sick putting up with things with drunk guys that are getting made all the money and all the, you know, all the acclaim and they're going out there drunk and I'm paying more attention to their audience than they are, you know, and making sure that when I put my bottom on that drum stool, I'm doing the absolute best I'm capable of doing on that in that moment. That's, that's, that's what I've always tried to do. And I feel that my reward is from doing those things. You know, it's not because I'm a, a drumming genius or, or, you know, at the cutting edge of anything, you know, it's just, for the most part, just hard work and God's amazing grace. How different a drummer are you now than what you used to be? Uh, I, I go back and uh, I, I'm not, again, I don't, I, I've listened to more of things that I've done in the past that I that I ever have because I'm not uh, by the time something's released I've always I'm already so sick of it the last thing in the world you're going to catch me doing is listening to something that I've recorded in the past but just every now and again I'll run across some I never post any of my own stuff on on YouTube or or or, or any on the uh, social media I'm not a uh, I, I retracted my presence from social media a couple of years ago for for some very uh, profound reasons and. Uh, uh, um, it's not that uh, I denigrate social media. It's, I mean, the fact that it's the cesspit of the universe is, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I'm not involved, but I don't post anything. And I say, wow, I, I don't remember having played that, you know, and say, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. And, but, and, but I'll critique it more from things that are really from my perspective now. And it seems to have even held up better now, that better in my mind than I would have otherwise pictured it, you know. A good example is as I played on a uh, a, a, a Japanese guitarist solo record of uh, several couple two three years ago, and the music was not over my head. It was just fast, fast, fast. The good tune was faster than the other, and I was coming off a, a coincidentally where I broke I broke my pelvis in a bike crash, and I was trying to rehab, and I was using working up this tune as part of my rehab. These songs, anyway. I was going to do and do go over and do a live DV, uh, do a DVD of of the music, but I didn't know that the DVD was going to be live. I thought it was going to be when you do a live DV, you do 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 two three nights, and they they like you do, they edit it and make you look like you know and sound like you know what you're doing. Well, by the time I got there, my flight, I missed a day of rehearsal. I was supposed to get one day of rehearsal, and then we were going to do the DVD. And I didn't realize it was going to be one show live DVD. Well, it was music that was ridiculous. And uh, I thought, oh my God, I, I had almost had hives. I was so I was so anxious because everybody else gets to go home and, and overdub all their parts. Well, the drummer never gets to do that. And so not only was it a live album CD, it was a live DVD. So there's nowhere to hide. So I had to play everything live and that, that's what's going to be used. And I can't, when I screw up, I can't, sh you know, put a big sign behind me and saying I'm playing like, you know, a polecat because I don't know what I'm doing. Forgive me. That's not an option. So I was like fit to be tied. I got there. I flew uh, all night. 
I, I lost my day off because I had to travel on my rest day because I, the flights were canceled. I flew in, went straight to rehearsal, rehearsed all day, all into the night. The next day we did the gig. And so I was a basket case. I, the, I never dreaded anything more in my life than the release of that DVD. And I did have right of I had a clause where I could sign off on it, but they had put so much money and expense in it, I could not, in good conscience, you know, say no, you can't do this to me. And so I was so dreading it. And when it came, I was so shocked and surprised. It was so much better than I even I I, I literally lost sleep, dreading the day that it would that I would have to listen to it. But it was far better than I thought. All that to say is, I'm not I'm not as bad as I think I am, but I suck pretty bad. <laughs> well, I doubt that. As I said, when I saw you in '73, you made an impact on me. So, can I ask you what what you're working on? Like, what I know you were just in the recording studio. Yeah, what I'm working on now is this, and trying to get back up to speed. I have I've had to move. I've had to cancel a bunch of stuff. Not so much performance stuff, but recording stuff. I'm trying to nurture more of uh, a little bit more uh, uh, a wider presence in remote recording and stuff like that. I get quite a few offers, but I'm always away traveling, and it's something that you need to be home to do. And I've never ever been able to work from home really my entire life and so it's something i've been trying to segue a little bit more into i don't know that i'll ever retire but i'm trying to minimize the the long you know uh pilgrimages on the road you know months and months and months of touring and stuff trying to minimize that even though one of most my most gratifying aspects of my life is a show well played night after night city after city that's you know it's easy to go in the studio and sound like sound like God, but to do it in real time, live on stage with no loops or tapes or anything, that's really gratifying. And that's, that's always my, my motive, motivation when I'm out on the road, you know, uh, I miss that, but I'm trying, once I get this, get out of this cast, I get this cast changed today and hopefully my uh, coming back time will be much shorter. I have a couple records in front of me. Uh, I have a side project called Iconica. It's a thing that I do with a couple other guys, and I've got uh, got some stuff coming to that. Some traction I'm doing on another gentleman's record, and I can't do any of it until I'm out of this. I've had to. I'm trying. I'm still waiting to see if. So I won't even mention it. Waiting to see if I can reschedule some of the things that I had on the, on my schedule. You know, that's kind of this is kind of put a, you know, uh, a hold so, on my program. So, to speak. but when you're at your level and you're playing to tens of thousands of people with White Snake or whoever do you ever just go play small venues set up a small kit and play for the sake of playing or is that something you just don't do because you've reached that point it's not that uh i would love to do something like that i would love to go and just anonymously or low-key show up in a little and play jam some tunes with a little blues band you know not so much locally but you know just off the cuff somewhere, but, and just sit in and just groove and play drums the way I never get to play drums without live by the sword, die by the sword. Cause people expect all this and, you know, just yeah. sit back there and play pocket and, 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 and smile and, and, and actually use a pair, of drum, a pair of drumsticks for more than two or three songs or actually use the same drum head for, you know, two or three nights instead of having to change my drum heads after every shift. I would love to do that. I play at church sometimes. I know that sounds weird, but I have a little hip kid kit. You know, we play our own music and stuff. And it's very uh, atypical uh, 
type of worship music, but every now and again, I get to sit in and, and play at my church every now and again. We have a church that's outdoors. It's a very atypical kind of church. But yeah, I would really like to do that. Maybe I'll do some of that uh, coming up. I don't know. I don't have any... Uh, my, my uh, go-to on stage is like I have this mindset that I have to be defy gravity and I, I have to like, uh, you know, play at 11 and, uh, you know, instead of 10 and so forth and so on. So it's going to require a total recalibration of uh, all the above, you know, <laughs> but I would very much like to do that and just be a human behind the kit, you know, not have any expectations or other than just you know, playing a nice pocket or so forth and so on, you know, do the things that I'm not known for. But it's not something you, you actually get to do very often. I, I get to do it in my drum room downstairs. I go in there for two or three hours every day. You know, I'm still in it now. I'm sitting there behind my kit with my practice pad, just working on exercises for my left hand because I'm not allowed to use this one, you know, and, and working on some patterns and stuff, you know, just fundamental stuff that I don't pay attention to when I'm out on the road. And, you know, uh, always this guy's always wanting to lag behind, you know, my non-dominant hand, just doing things like that in this so-called downtime. I believe this is not uh, a curse, you know, my little accident. It's, there's something in it for me. There's always, he's in everything. He's in everything. And so just trying to find what he has in, in this for me, you know, and, and that, that takes a lot of looking and searching, you know, you have to, and so that's what I've been doing, you know, working on just silly exercises that I did on my practice pad when I was a kid, you know, with just with my left hand, but double time in it, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, Tommy, thank you so much. This has been a thrill, and uh, I really appreciate it. I hope your wrist gets better very soon, and uh, I hope I hope to see you on the road sometime. Yes, Marco, if I'm out and about and you hear about it, just ping me. Look, stay in touch. It's an honor, and again, I, I appreciate your interest, Marco. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. You take care.